Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hi, I'm Heather Madden, Director of Advocacy Projects at Independent Women's Voice, the sister organization and advocacy arm of Independent Women's Forum. Welcome to IWF's Working for Women podcast. Today, I'm here with Hadley Heath-Manning, Senior Policy Analyst and Director of Health Policy at Independent Women's Forum. Hadley manages all of IWF's health policy programs and has written extensively on the issue. Her work has been featured in publications including The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Politico, Roll Call, Real Clear Policy, The Tampa Tribune, National Review Online, The Daily Caller, and townhall.com. Today, Hadley and I are going to be discussing the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. We're going to talk specifically about what are commonly referred to as the three R's in Obamacare. Hadley, thanks so much for joining me today. Of course, Heather. Good to be here with you. So the three R's is a topic that you take a deeper dive on in a recent article that you wrote for The Blaze, but more to come on that later. Uh, First, will you go ahead and explain to our listeners what the three R's in Obamacare are and why they were created in the first place? Right. Today, we're not talking about reading, writing, and arithmetic. We're talking about risk adjustment, reinsurance, and risk corridors. And these are three programs, um, sometimes called risk and market stabilization programs, um, that together are a part of the Affordable Care Act, and um, they function to uh, provide some options for health insurance companies. We knew that the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare would make very significant changes to the way health insurance companies do business. And uh, in order to protect and stabilize the health insurance market, if you even want to call it a market anymore, um, these programs were put into place. A couple of them are temporary. One of them is intended to be permanent. Um, But if we have just a minute, I'll try to explain what each of these three R's do. So the first um, risk adjustment is a program that essentially moves money from plans that have very uh, low-risk pools. In other words, if you have a lot of healthy people sign up, and that's what health insurance companies want. If you think about a successful health insurance company that makes a lot of money, it would be one where the pool of customers are paying in premiums constantly, but they're not very sick and they're not making a lot of medical claims. So if you have very low risk or healthy people in your pool, you're supposed to pay into the risk adjustment plan. And on the other hand, if you're a plan that has uh, actuarial risk or a pool of people who are higher risk, then you get payments out of the risk adjustment program. So basically intended to provide some um, stability and protect against what people in the insurance business called adverse selection. So one of the big changes in the ACA is that insurance companies, of course, now have to take all customers. If you want to sign up for an insurance plan, they can't turn you away and say, well, you're too sick or we don't want to insure you because of your medical condition. Uh, They have to accept you. And so some plans might get an outsized number of those sicker people. And so to protect them, they, they have the risk adjustment plan. Now, reinsurance has been in the news recently, but reinsurance, if, uh, if you're in the insurance world, then you understand reinsurance perfectly. Reinsurance is actually all around us. You know, every insurance business has got a reinsurance business behind it, whether that's home or 
auto, property and casualty insurance. Uh, there are reinsurance companies that exist to insure insurance companies. So you can think of reinsurance as an insurance plan for health insurance companies. But under the law, the reinsurance plan in the ACA is operated by the government. And every health insurance plan in the country pays into this pool, like their premiums. And then when individual insurance companies run into uh, a claim for or a series of claims for one particular enrollee that is above a threshold, then the reinsurance plan helps them pay for the cost of that very expensive person. So the way insurance is supposed to work is something bad happens and then your insurance company shows up to help you mitigate the loss from the bad thing that happened. And that's what happens with reinsurance too. When insurance companies run into unexpectedly high costs for a particular enrollee, the reinsurance plan helps them cover those costs. And then finally, there's the risk corridor program, which is going to sound very similar to the risk adjustment program, but essentially the Department of Health and Human Services collects funds from certain plans, plans that had lower than expected claims, and then they pay out payments to plans that had higher than expected claims. So yet again, this is one of those uh, programs that's supposed to limit losses and gains for health insurance companies and provide um, what's, what's called stability by the people who created the law. Um, but the thing about the risk corridor program that has caused the most controversy probably is that these payments from one insurance company to another or from some insurance companies to others don't have to equal zero. So it doesn't, it, it was designed as not a budget neutral program. So in other words, if health insurance companies had a wonderful year, the first year of Obamacare, and they had much lower than expected claims, we would have had a surplus in this program that would have rolled into the federal government's budget and that would have helped us as taxpayers. Um, but instead, what we've seen happening is the opposite. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. But um, this plan, I guess this part of, of the Affordable Care Act has been most controversial for that reason. Well, thank you for explaining those different programs for us and, and helping us better understand them. Um, now, some people have called these programs a bailout. Um, and, you know, that seems like a, a pretty serious characterization to me. We, we think of, of, of a bailout as, as a last resort, as, as the only option available to save a, a failing business or program. Um, so what's your take on this? Why, why are some people calling these programs a bailout? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's largely a matter of semantics, how you would answer that question. So bailout, like you said, implies that something unexpected and terrible has happened. This is what we think of when we think of the financial crisis. The big banks got bailed out because there was a crisis. And so when we use the term bailout, talk about the three R's in Obamacare, that conjures an image of crisis in the health insurance industry. But in reality, you know, people have pushed back on the use of this term bailout because the three R's were part of the design. They were part of the architecture of the Affordable Care Act. They were not an afterthought or something that was created later, you know, to try to salvage the health insurance company uh, companies, but they were intended as part of the law from the very beginning. So that's sort of where the argument is um, around the word bailout. Some people see it as cronyism or crony capitalism because the government has all of these um, protections in place for a particular industry, an industry which, by the way, has borne a, a lot of um, benefit and consequence due to the Affordable Care Act's other structural changes. Um, but it, 
it's not truly correct to say that they were a bailout in the sense that they were not, you know, these programs were not included um, because of a crisis. They were included because of the design of the law. Wow. And if, you know, and if it takes this kind of, of government uh, you know, intervention to, to keep a program afloat, though, then, then we may have a bigger problem on our hands, right? Oh, that's right. And, and you know, that's uh, part of the, the issue with the three R's or with the Affordable Care Act in general. A lot of health insurance companies are saying, you know, when these programs end, and I, I mentioned that uh, the reinsurance program and the risk corridor program are supposed to end this year in 2016. Now, the risk adjustment program is supposed to be permanent. But some of these health insurance companies, and particularly, you might remember the co-ops that were created by the ACA. Those are consumer-oriented and operated plans or nonprofit plans that were started um, with government loans, essentially. So many of those plans failed, and so many health insurance companies have struggled with their bottom lines under the ACA, You know, depending on which type of plan you're looking at. And they will blame some of these programs, and they'll blame some of the changes to these programs and say, well, we didn't get enough money from the three R's. We didn't get enough money from the risk corridor payments, um, and that's why we're struggling. And, you know, that to me strikes me as uh, a really bad justification for why your business is doing poorly in reality. Health insurance companies and the co-ops are struggling because of the other rules included in the Affordable Care Act. When you have to accept all enrollees in a plan without any regard for their health history or health status, without any price discrimination or uh, risk-based pricing, of course, we're going to see a lot of uh, tumultuous changes in the way health insurance companies operate. And, you know, of course, the three R's were intended to stabilize those changes, but uh, it's yet to be seen how successful uh, we have been as a nation in keeping that industry afloat. It's been six years since the Affordable Care Act was passed, and you know these programs are, are still around. So I think you could certainly make the argument that that these programs are not temporary, um, that they're here to stay, and uh, that they're necessary uh, in order to to keep Obamacare afloat. Now, your recent article in The Blaze focuses on one of the three R's: the reinsurance program. And you explain how it is shorting taxpayers billions of dollars. So what's the most recent news on that? Right. Well, congressional lawmakers are investigating the reinsurance program for that very reason. Effectively, the the plan or the projection for the reinsurance part was that every year health insurance companies would pay into it and all health insurance plans have to pay in, although it, it should be emphasized that only plans that are uh, compliant with the Affordable Care Act are eligible for the benefits of reinsurance. So only those plans can uh, essentially file reinsurance claims and get help from the reinsurance program when they have those high unexpected costs. Um, but that money was supposed to go, $2 billion of it every year was supposed to go to the U.S. Treasury. And essentially, the people at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have shrugged their shoulders and said, no, we're not going to give this $2 billion a year over to the federal treasury. We're just going to send it back out in claims to health insurance companies that have uh, high reinsurance claim problems. Um, and so that really amounts to cronyism. That's a, a change after the fact in the way that the law was written. The law has been written so that the reinsurance program would pay taxpayers into into our treasury. Any dollar that's paid into the treasury is a dollar of tax relief for the rest of the country. And when they're not doing that, of course, lawmakers have to look into it. And so over the course of the past two years, there's about $3.5 billion that CMS was supposed to turn over to the treasury 
out of the reinsurance program that they haven't. And so that's at the center of the latest controversy. Wow. Now, as you mentioned uh, in your piece, uh, so the insurance companies, they pay these fees to the government, uh, essentially, so the government can then step in and help these companies when they have members with, with very high medical costs. So I'm curious, Hadley, um, where do these fees come from? Um, who, who are the people paying for them? Right. Well, like a typical fee or a typical cost of doing business, businesses aren't just paying these fees out of the goodness of their hearts, but they're typically passing along the cost of these fees to their customers. And that's people like you and me. So uh, insurance companies, like I said, all insurance plans have to pay this fee and it's a fee per covered life. And so it's not even, you know, if my husband and I count as one family or one policy we still count as two covered lives. And so what is happening within the reinsurance premiums uh, is that every covered life in 2015 um, paid $107 to help uh, their insurance company pay their reinsurance premiums, which went to the government and then went back out to other health insurance companies that had enrollees with very high claims costs. So we are paying a price for this, even if we don't see it in terms of, you know, I know it's tax season and everyone's filing their taxes. We don't have a line item for the reinsurance fees that we're paying, but we are paying them through our health insurance premiums. Wow. It's, you know, it's interesting that, that these, that we're kicking on this expense and, and it doesn't even show up on a, a W-2 form or, or anything when you go to file your, file your taxes and, you know, we're talking about, uh, I guess, about $428 for a family of four per year. So, you know, it's a pretty significant cost for us to be taking on, um, you know, and for us not to be aware of it. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about another one of the three R's, the Risk Corridor Program. And in your piece, you talk about how the Risk Corridor Program was projected to have a surplus of $8 billion. Um, that's a pretty substantial amount. Uh, instead, however, the program was short $2.5 billion. So can you explain for us why this projection was off by billions of dollars? Yeah, they were only off by about $10.5 billion, So <laughs> no big deal, right? In Washington, that's like pocket change. But oh, man, it's, it's, it's been very disappointing. Um, the risk corridor program. And before the reinsurance program got in trouble uh, and is you know now under congressional investigation, I would say the risk uh, corridor program has been you know the one that has faced the most controversy due to the fact that it's been so far off from its projected profits and has you know instead produced losses. Um, but fortunately, uh, some members of Congress acted to prevent the program from using taxpayer dollars um, to fill in that gap. But the reason that the projections were so far off is, of course, the risk corridor program is trying to guess, essentially, what kind of claims different health insurance companies are going to make. Are they going to make high claims? Or are they going to make low claims? And um, claims, of course, are based on medical use. Every time you go to the doctor, uh, there's a claim on your insurance company. And, uh, you know, unless you're one of the few Americans who directly pays for your health care, uh, and then your insurance company gives you an explanation of benefits and they give the money to your health care provider to, to cover that claim. Well, what has happened under the Affordable Care Act, and there's just there's a new study even out this week um, from Blue Cross Blue Shield showing that under the Affordable Care Act, people who are participating in these plans have higher rates of disease. They've used more medical services. Um, this shouldn't have been a surprise because a lot of people who 
lacked health insurance before the ACA uh, were people with medical conditions and uh, who hadn't, if you hadn't been insured for several years, then uh, once you're insured again, you have a high demand for medical services. You want to go get things checked out that you haven't had checked out for years. Um, We've seen this in the Medicaid program too. And States have expanded Medicaid. We see a lot more use of the medical system, even especially emergency rooms, which might be surprising to some people. But the optimists who passed the Affordable Care Act had, I I believe, rose-colored glasses on um, when they were hoping that the risk corridor program would produce a surplus because they were essentially saying, "Uh, we're just going to enroll more people in health insurance. That's not going to come with that big of a cost. They'll have health insurance and Maybe then we can use preventative medicine to keep them from getting sicker and costing more. This is sort of the philosophy of uh, people who believe in universal health insurance. But in reality, those people have been very sick and they've used a lot of medical services. And this has increased the claims that health insurance companies have had to pay out under the ACA. And as those claims are higher, so are the number of dollars that uh, health insurance companies are demanding out of the risk corridor program. So Again, when there's a negative in the, the mismatch between how much insurance companies are paying in and how much they're demanding out based on the formulas, there's a, a shortage of money. And, and uh, of course, the original plan was for that money to come out of uh, taxpayer expense, out of the federal government. Um, but that changed due to some changes to our federal government's uh, budget picture. Wow. And it's kind of you know mind-boggling that that's the case because it shouldn't be a surprise that you know, that insurance companies were going to be overwhelmed by, by sick uh, customers, considering that, you know, Obamacare is a bad deal for healthier consumers and it's a more attractive one for those who are sick, uh, more sick. So, right. And even, even uh, for healthy people, I just want to point out, when you are healthy, if you reduce to zero your cost at the point of consumption for any health service, whether it's birth control or a well checkup with your doctor, that's going to increase demand for those services. And, of course, people on the other side of the political spectrum would say that's a good thing because we want people consuming those healthcare services. But I would say, you know, we want people to consume the right amount of healthcare. We don't want them to overconsume or underconsume healthcare services. And the best way, of course, to make sure people are consuming the right amount of anything is a pricing system that, uh, you know, really illustrates to consumers what value they're getting out of various services. And we don't have a good pricing system in healthcare because there's no transparency and there's no transparency because we have so many multi-party payers. And the Affordable Care Act, in my opinion, made that a lot worse. So that's why we're seeing, I think, overconsumption of some health services, underconsumption of others. We don't have a good pricing system for consumers. Exactly. Now, as you mentioned Earlier, uh, taxpayers didn't have to to foot the bill for this shortage um, in the risk corridor program because Congress stepped in. And we all heard um, a bit about this risk uh, corridor provision when when Marco Rubio was still in in the presidential race. Uh, But do you mind explaining for us exactly how this provision prevented the program from using taxpayer dollars to pay out insurance companies? Right. So a couple of years ago, as part of a a budget battle on Capitol Hill, uh, Senator Marco Rubio and others uh, worked to include a provision that essentially said, "Okay, we're going to keep the risk corridor program because there were some who just wanted to scrap the program entirely. They said, let's keep the program, but let's make sure that it's budget neutral. So in other words, if you have a shortage, if you have a loss, 
uh, if you have a mismatch in the amount of money that health insurance companies want out of the risk corridors, that's not going to come out of taxpayer expense. So this was a protection for us as taxpayers, and we ought to be uh, commending those lawmakers for um, this very wise move. And of course, some health insurance companies and the co-ops blame those members of Congress and those senators for taking away this uh, money that was supposed to go out to them. But of course, this would be like if I went to the mall and decided to buy a lot of clothes and I was at the cash register, didn't have enough money to pay. And then I blamed you, Heather, for not giving me money <laughs> to pay for the clothes that I wanted to buy. You know, if you're a business, you have to cover your own expenses. That's the way other industries work. And that's the way health insurance should work. But of course, when health insurance companies uh, have this deal with the government, and the terms of that deal are renegotiated later, and this is the case with the omnibus, when uh, senators and members of Congress voted to make this program budget neutral. That was also the case in the following year's budget. I think that was a good move because I think that ultimately we're all taxpayers. We're all paying health insurance premiums to our health insurers. Um, now, health insurance companies, there's another side to this that I think, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about those fees that we get charged for the reinsurance program. The risk corridor program affects our premiums, too, because health insurance companies say without the risk corridor payments or without sufficient risk corridor per, uh, payments, we're going to have to raise premiums on consumers. But those higher premiums don't reflect the failure of the government to pay insurance companies money out of a certain plan or program. Those higher premiums reflect the costs associated with implementing the Affordable Care Act, with following all the rules and regulations and offering all the coverages that the law requires. Um, so ultimately, we're better off, not just as taxpayers, but as consumers, because of this budget neutrality requirement, because it requires health insurance companies to reveal to us the true costs of the Affordable Care Act. And that's, of course, why President Obama and others who support the law don't like changing the risk corridor program. They don't like ending the risk corridor program because they'd like to keep money shuffling behind the scenes to make it look like the law is more affordable in terms of our health insurance premiums than it actually is. And that might be mind-blowing to some people who've seen their health insurance premiums double and triple under the Affordable Care Act, but that's still not a 100% true depiction of the costs because as long as these risk corridor pro programs are protecting health insurance companies, they're using those payments to, in an attempt to keep some premiums low. So when those payments go away, that's going to reveal yet another layer of how expensive this law has become. Absolutely. You know, and, and you, you know, hearing about this, you become really concerned about the amount of uh, secrecy, it seems, um, you know, going on in our healthcare system. And I must say, um, you know, hearing about these handouts and, and, hit, and these hidden costs that the consumers are, uh, you know, dealing with as a result, I'm I'm really concerned. My big takeaway is um, that I'm really concerned about the lack of transparency in our government, uh, particularly in our healthcare system. So, what do you think is the solution to this, this kind of cronyism? You know, what can we do about the three R's? Uh, well, we should let dead dogs lie. So if the risk corridor program and the reinsurance program are phasing out according to their deadlines, which should be 2016, we shouldn't extend the programs. We should let them sunset. Um, the risk adjustment program is intended to stay in place, um, but it is also supposed to be budget neutral, so it shouldn't affect our budget picture as taxpayers. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that we can do and that we try to do at IWF is to simply raise 
awareness about these programs. I mean, one of the reasons our healthcare system is so difficult to understand is because there are so many different laws and policies and regulations that govern the type of health insurance we're required to carry. Uh, We have state laws, we have federal laws, of course, we have the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Many people are not even in the private health insurance market because they have some kind of government insurance program, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICAID, I mean, uh, TRICARE, Veterans Health. Um, So there's a lot of uh, different pieces to our healthcare system. We don't just have one, but we really have several. And it's uh, complex because, again, as I mentioned earlier, we have so many different payers. We have a pipeline of payment, even for very simple transactions, which should be direct transactions between us and our healthcare providers. And so I would say, you know, the bottom line with our healthcare system is we have to get back somehow to um, including and infusing some market forces in healthcare, because if we don't do that, then uh, we've got all kinds of problems. We've got a doctor shortage. You know, we've got problems delivering healthcare to the people who need it when they need it. And on the other hand, we have uh, wide availability of certain services that are maybe being overconsumed. Uh, there are people who are overinsured. There are people who are underinsured. And we can't find the, the right balance, the right equilibria in those different things unless we have some kind of market forces in healthcare. So I know people probably have reform fatigue. We've just reformed our healthcare system six years ago. Um, but I would argue that we need another series of reforms um, to really bring the decision-making and the control back to individuals, which I'm sure many people feel that, that they've never had, you know, because our system's largely been controlled by uh, the federal and state governments and by our employers and by big health insurance companies. But Ultimately, when we go back to reform our laws again, we have to think about the consumer, the patient, the individual person or family as really the heart of the decision-making process alongside their doctors um, when it comes to healthcare. And unless we do that, there's, uh, you know, everything else is just kind of um, twisting the dials or uh, shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. Right. And as you, you point out, you know, when you have to uh, you know, m- remove the concept of risk. And, and when you're forcing health insurance companies to all do business the same way, then it's difficult to provide a system where we're giving consumers choices, um, you know, for, for, that fit their needs and, and d- certainly, um, you know, prevents us, prevents more competition from, from the impossible. Okay, this has been another edition of IWF's Working for Women podcast. Thank you so much, Hadley, for joining us today. And for those who listened, thank you for tuning in. You can learn more about the Independent Women's Forum and can find out more about this topic and many more at IWF.org. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.